1722, Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf, troubled by the suffering of Christian exiles from Bohemia and Moravia, he allowed them to establish a community on his estate in Germany. The center became known as the Hern Hut, meaning under the Lord's watch. It quickly grew, as did its appreciation for prayer. On August 27, 1727, 24 men and 24 women covenanted together to spend at least one hour a day continuously praying. It is scheduled this time around the clock, clock 24 hours a day. And others joined over time, and more people joined, and more people joined. Days passed, and then months. Unceasing prayer rose to God. 24 hours a day, as someone, at least one person, was always on schedule to be praying for one another. They met weekly also for encouragement to read letters and messages from their brothers in different places. They had plenty of needs to pray about. And a decade passed, and the prayer meeting continued. And then another decade passed. And in total, this was to be a 100-year prayer meeting of nonstop, one person at least, round-the-clock prayer. Undoubtedly, this prayer chain helped birth Protestant missions. Zinzendorf's prayer meetings spawned missions in the West Indies, Greenland, and Turkey, started the Moravian missions movement, which would eventually spark the conversions of John and Charles Wesley. The prayer meeting lasted for 100 years, but its impact will go on for eternity. And such is the power and importance of intercessory prayer for other believers. Although this remarkable 100-year prayer meeting is gone today, we still have the power of prayer, specifically intercessory prayer, where we are praying for one another. God is honored when his people pray, and it's the means he uses to accomplish his will here on earth. And so it's not surprising to find that the Apostle Paul, he begins just about every one of his letters with prayer for the believers, for the saints. He interceded for them nonstop, and he calls us to do the same. He tells us to pray without ceasing, to be devoted to prayer. Peter tells us to be of sound mind and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Our Lord himself tells us to pray at all times and not to lose heart. Nothing should so characterize a disciple of Jesus Christ as prayer, regular, consistent prayer. And we find a much-needed reminder to this effect in our passage for this morning in Philippians chapter 1. So let's turn there now together. Turn to Philippians chapter 1. We're technically still in the introduction to Philippians, but already we've learned a lot. Paul wrote this short letter to the Philippians while he was in jail in Rome for the first time. He would be released. But during this time, he wrote four letters. They're known as the prison epistles. Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. This fact makes these letters all the more remarkable because in them, we don't find Paul complaining or despairing. Rather, he's thanking God and praising God. He was the one unjustly suffering in prison, yet he still possesses the joy of the Lord, and he still contends with God fervently in prayer. And so each one of these letters, they open with a note of his thanksgiving and prayer for the saints. In Colossians 1.3, he says, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying for you always. Ephesians 1.16, he says, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Philemon 4, he says, I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers. And what do you know? We find the same thing in Philippians. He starts with a note of thanksgiving for them and prayer for them as well. 
And so far we've already covered Paul's thanksgiving for them in verses 3 through 8. Today we come to his actual prayer for them in verses 9 through 11. But that being said, there's even more going on because not only is he just not just praying for them, but he's also leading them by example. Paul was a living example of how the Christian is to remain prayerful even in the midst of great adversity. Such prayer is a huge component of our peace and joy in Christ. When you turn your prayers from yourself to to others, you find a deeper dimension of peace and joy and unity in the body of Christ. And these are all important lessons Paul is going to teach on throughout Philippians, but he models them first here in his opening prayer for the believers. And as Paul was following Christ, so we would do well to follow him. In fact, later in chapter 4, before he closes, he tells them just that. Chapter 4, verse 9, he says, The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. You know, if we were in Paul's shoes of suffering, we would be so prone to worry about ourselves and complain about our circumstances. But Paul lifted his perspective from self, from circumstances to the Lord and to others, far more concerned about the Lord and others. And he expressed that concern for others in prayer. That gave him a deeper level of joy and peace and unity in Christ. What we see from Paul, this is model Christian living. And so we still would do well to practice the things we we learn, we hear, we see in him. That's what we're going to do this morning. As with verses 3 through 8 today, as we approach verses 9 through 11, we want to continue to learn from the example of Paul. We already learned from his example of giving thanks for other believers. Now we set our sights on his example of praying for other believers. Specifically, I want to point out three components of intercessory prayer so that you may learn how to pray for others yourself. Three components of intercessory prayer, praying for others. These are three components you need to include in your prayers. They're not exhaustive, but you'll find they are essential. We'll begin with this, number one, the right content. The right content. And that would be a discerning love. A discerning love. Let's, let's read the passage, Philippians 1. 9 through 11, join me in verse 9. He says, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul mentioned praying for the Philippians back in verse 4. It's only here in verse 9 we actually find out what that prayer was all about. And so first, I want you to take notice as to the content of this prayer. Look again at verse 9. He says, In this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. So off the bat, first, in general, what's he praying for? Well, generally, you could say there's spiritual growth. That's what he's after. There's spiritual growth. This is the consistent pattern in Paul's prayers. 
his primary concern for believers is their spiritual growth. We don't really see Paul praying all too often for their physical needs, church growth, travel mercies. Not saying we shouldn't pray for such things, but there's something to learn from his consistent emphasis on spiritual growth. His prayers were were dominated by them growing in grace. So already overall, you could take a cue from this for your own prayer life. How do you pray for others? I mean, you do pray for others, right? So how, how do you pray? It's not wrong to pray for their material needs, that they'd get that raise at work, they'd sell their house, they'd have a, a good trip. Nothing wrong with that, of course, but there should be a real emphasis on what matters the most. And, and for believers, what matters the most? It is Christ-likeness. It is our growth in grace. So pray accordingly. Pray spiritual prayers for one another. Now, we can get more specific because Paul gets more specific. And concerning spiritual growth, specifically, though, he's praying they would grow in what? Love, verse 9, that they would abound in love. He says, in this I pray that your love may abound still more and more. You know, before salvation, we lived entirely in the sinful flesh, which was all about the love of self. We lived for self. We served self above all else. But in salvation, God transformed us by his love. He created within us a love, a new love for God and for others. In fact, that's one of the most essential identifying marks of a true Christian. Love for God and for others. However, that love must grow. Like a planted seed, it must be watered and cultivated because for now we still have the sinful flesh. So that selfishness, it's still inside of us. And so therefore we must strive in this love for God and others. This is a huge aspect of our spiritual growth into the image of Christ, who was perfect in his love. And so that's why Paul is praying that they would abound, they would grow in their love. This word for abound means just that, to exceed, to surpass, to overflow. He prays that their love for one another would be overflowing. Just picture a dinner table. It's covered completely in food. Every square inch is just overflowing in some, some delicacy. You would say it is an abounding feast. And that should be the picture of your love for others. Not a famine, but a feast. So this is his prayer to abound in that type of love. We therefore should both pray for others for such love, but also take a moment to pause and and foster this own type of love in our own lives. I mean, what, what about you? Are you a loving person? Does your love for others abound? Or another question, are you loving enough How would you answer that question? Are you loving others enough? I'm sure in humility you'd say, oh, no, of course not. I still have a ways to go, the right answer. But is that how you're living? Because I find a lot of people, they live like they are loving enough. I don't don't really need to welcome that new person. I, I welcomed someone last week. I don't really need to volunteer to meet that need. I helped someone paint like two weeks ago. Or, you know, I, I don't think I need to do that much more. I'm a pretty nice person already. You see, but the problem with such an attitude of complacency is that no Christian ever arrives in the matter of love. 
There's no such thing as a Christian who's loving enough. And that's why Paul prayed for the Philippians that their love would abound still more. They were already a pretty loving church. You know, the same thing goes for the Thessalonian church. They were known for being just the most loving church around. Yet you know what Paul still told them in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9? He said, hey, now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. And they're the most loving church around, but he told them, hey, praise God for that, but excel still more. And you likewise need to excel still more in your love, to abound, to grow in this abounding love for others. This is a pursuit that never ends in the Christian life. Picture a gushing river, a river that's just bounding and overflowing with water. Think of the L.A. River. Now, you might be surprised to hear L.A. has a river. It does. It's there. It's mostly made of concrete, but it's there. I've seen it. I didn't live too far from it. And I'll tell you, though, after a big rain, it turns into quite a river. After a heavy, you know, five-day rain, it, it turns into a gushing rapid. And that, that's a good picture for your love for others, this overflowing, bountiful river. The problem, though, is that for many people, their love for others is a little bit too much like the L.A. River. It's abounding with water five days of the year, but the other 360, it's a dead, dry, empty cement creek. And that's a problem. But I trust you get the picture, which is yours, which is your love, that the drought or, or the bountiful river. You know, if you find your river empty, I can tell you the problem. Every river has a source. And if your love has run dry for others, if you just find that, well, it's most likely because you've become disconnected from, from the source, the love of God, the, the great ocean of God's love. You first need to be abiding, receiving, dwelling in the love of God. How do you do that? Well, by constantly remembering and embracing the, all the great love God has, has shown you. Remember, this is not a, a forced or coerced love. It springs from within as we receive and are transformed by God's love first. And so just spend some time remembering and reflecting first on your sin. Think of all, all that you've done wrong against God. All, all the sins, all, all that you have violated, deserving judgment. But then think of Christ. How God sent his son Christ to die on the cross in your place to pay for all that wrong, just to wipe it away, total forgiveness, that if you are in Christ by faith, you are completely redeemed. Now, if, if, as you recall that, if you're a real believer, that's going to result in you loving God and others. Why? Well, like Jesus said, the one who is forgiven much loves much. And if you really just you, you feel that, you get that, you sense that, how much you've been forgiven, you're going to love. That's, that's the spirit working within you. So that's what you need to do. Tap back into the love of God. And then likewise, excel still more in your love for God and for others. Now, when you think about it, a full river is a source of great blessing to all. But when a, when a river becomes so strong that it overflows its banks, it suddenly becomes a great source of destruction. So any good river needs good river banks. 
to guide it, to direct it. And so in verse 9, Paul prescribes what we could say, they're like two riverbanks to help guide and control the Philippians' abounding love. And these are knowledge and discernment. Again, verse 9. He says, In this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and discernment. So first he mentions real knowledge. This is a heightened word for knowledge in the Greek. True, genuine, authentic knowledge. Paul made a big deal about believers possessing this knowledge. Just about every one of his letters, likewise, he he prays or exhorts them to be filled with this true knowledge. What is it? Well, it's talking about a deepening awareness and understanding of the things of God. It's knowing God more, which comes through knowing God's word more. We're talking a spiritual knowledge of God, of course, his word, his will, his ways, his plan. Knowledge alone does not save a person. You're saved by faith alone. But a true knowledge is necessary for a true faith, right? You you have to know God rightly. That's the problem the Jews made. Paul said of them in Romans 10.2, Hey, they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. They, they have it wrong. And so the first riverbank that is meant to guide and control and direct your love is knowledge. You have to love according to the truth, to true knowledge. The second riverbank, you could say, he mentions is discernment. This means perception, insight, capacity for understanding, spiritually speaking. It's the power of moral discrimination and ethical judgment. In other words, it's the ability to discern between good and evil, what is best, what is right and wrong. It's kind of like eating chicken. This is the discernment that tells you you eat the chicken, you spit out the bone, and not the other way around. And you apply that in a spiritual sense to spiritual matters. He wants us to be discerning. I mean, look, you need to have an abounding love for others, but if your love is not guided by knowledge and discernment, you're going to get yourself into trouble. This is how that the sweet old lady gives all of her money to that poor missionary in India, only to learn he was a scam artist. Or that young convert sees the preacher on TV and believes just everything he says because he's on TV. You see, discernment and knowledge, they're needed to guide our love. And this is such a needed reminder for our own day. Our society has become all about love, which at first, that sounds great, until you realize it's not a love that's informed by, by knowledge and discernment. Sinful and immoral behavior is embraced. Everything's swept under the rug of love. And it seems about every month or so now, another popular preacher comes out embracing all those who live in such sin, all in the name of love. But realize to God, that's not love. God hates sin, and we cannot in any measure love what he hates. It's like Paul said over again in 1 Thessalonians 5:21. He told them to examine everything carefully, And then hold fast to that which is good and abstain from every form of evil. And he's saying the same thing here, that you would love, but, but rightly, truly, discerningly. And so again, abound in your love for others, but with true knowledge and discernment. Take this to heart in your own life 
and incorporate this into your prayers for others because this is the first component to Paul's model prayer. It is the right content of intercessory prayer, a discerning love, a discerning love. I hope you take this exhortation really seriously to be praying such a prayer for others in this body, in this church, in the body of Christ. Look, I bet some of you right now might be confessing in your heart, you know, I, I, don't, I don't really pray that much or as much as I think I should for others. And I can only pray that the Spirit would convict your heart in that matter, that you would pray more for one another. But as you do pray, this is what to pray for. I mean, this prayer request, it applies to all of us to grow in our love for one another. You can never say you're short a prayer request. You got nothing. I mean, this is it. This applies to all of us. We all need to continue to grow and strive in a discerning love, to excel still more. So do that. I'll ask you a question. Do you know of any unloving Christians? You ever met one before? I mean, I'm sure not in this church, but... There, there's such a thing as an unloving Christian? Well, how would you react to such an unloving Christian? I mean, do you, do you write them off? Do you ignore them? Or worse yet, do you complain about them? Maybe for you the answer is yes. The person rubs you the wrong way, maybe even in this own church, and so you just kind of cut them off in your heart. But let me ask you another question. Do you ever pray for such people? Do you ever intercede on behalf of your brother or sister in Christ who, who does rub you the wrong way? I mean, after all, they're unloving, they're rude, right? So all the more so, shouldn't you be praying for them that they would grow in Christlikeness, grow in love? Yeah. Again, this is a point that needs to be reiterated. We're all sinners, and that sin will divide, even in the church, but when you accept the call to pray for one another, you're going to find unity is the result. At the very least, be a part of the solution by praying and not a part of the problem by complaining. There's actually a bit of discord in the Philippian church. Later in chapter 4, Paul calls out two women by name, Yodia and Syntyche, and he tells them to live in harmony together. Calls them out in front of everybody. Tells them to live in harmony these two women had been fighting in the church. Now, do you think they had been praying for one another? Interceding for one another that they would grow in love? I don't think so. If they had, I bet they would have viewed one another much more graciously. And we must be different. Take up the charge and follow the example of Paul, both to abound in this love in your own life and to be praying for one another Likewise, this is the first component of intercessory prayer. It's the right content, discerning love. Secondly, the right purpose. The right purpose, and that would be sincere holiness. Sincere holiness. Again, verse, verse 9. He says, In this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more, in real knowledge, in all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Here we see Paul's motivation, his purpose behind this prayer for them. And what is it? It is so that they would be found 
blameless and sincere until the day of Christ. Starting off, though, the first half of verse 10, he says, so that you may approve the things that are excellent. That first phrase, that's not actually the purpose of his prayer. That's actually the result of what he just said, meaning it naturally follows from from verse 9. As you abound in love, in discerning love, it's going to lead you to approve the things that are excellent. Literally, it says, so that you may distinguish the things that differ. It's all about discerning what is best. The idea here is of Christians sifting, testing, examining everything that they may do what is, what is best. Imagine you've got $200 bills in your hand. One is real. One is counterfeit. On the surface, real quick, they look identical. It's going to take you examining them, carefully inspecting them to discern which one is is best, which one's real, which one is, is true. That's the idea here applied, of course, to moral or spiritual testing. The Christian needs to be spiritually discerning in all aspects of life, not just the obvious stuff. We're not just talking obvious good and evil, but even the, the finer details of the Christian life. You might call them the gray areas where the line is blurred. This is the type of discernment where the Christian asks, not only is this lawful, but also is this profitable? They're asking not just, can I do this, but but should I do this? Paul wants them to test every situation, every choice to determine what is best. So, for example, you've got liberty to watch TV, but the discerning Christian would examine every show and just wonder, okay, can I watch this? Should I? watch this is this profitable maybe there's this new show out everybody's talking about it it's really popular but it's filled with obscenity and and it glorifies evil this is the discerning christian who would just stay away for the benefit of his own soul and sanctification this is the type of sifting we're talking about here paul is praying that they would approve the things that are excellent discern what is best just like he said over in romans 12 2 He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And you can see how this is the result of a discerning love. As your love for others is guided by knowledge and and wisdom, you're going to discern what is best. Okay, but that all sounds good, but what's the point? To what end? Why is this so important? Well, he gets into a deeper purpose. Again, verse 9, he prays that their love may abound more and more. Verse 10, so that you may approve the things that are excellent. And then he says, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. And that right there, that last phrase in verse 10, he gets to his real purpose in this prayer. He prays ultimately that they would be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. This is why he wants them to grow in love, not just so that they're nicer people, but that they would be found approved by Christ. And in this prayer, Paul is merely reflecting God's will for our lives, which is what? Holiness. All throughout the Old and New Testaments, God repeats this call to his people. You are to be holy. As I, the Lord your God, am holy. God wants us to be set apart from all sin and evil. 
He wants us to be consecrated entirely unto him. This is God's greatest desire for our lives. And therefore, it's a worthy subject of our prayers. Your prayers for others should have this ultimate purpose behind them. You're not praying just so that your friend would be happy or healthy or wealthy or wise. You're praying ultimately that they would be holy, made into the image of Christ. Look, it's, again, it's okay to, of course, pray that your friend has a nice flight. Sure. But the, the final destination of your prayers for others has to be their growth in Christ. Why? Because that's what God wants most. That's what he values most in us. Not merely our, our happiness, but our Christ-likeness. And so we're, that's how we're going to pray, because we pray God's will. Now, we can drill down a little bit more on what exactly Paul's mean uh, means by these words, sincere and blameless. First, he prays that they would be sincere. That's the first goal in this prayer, that they would be found sincere. What does that mean? Well, the word in the Greek, it's formed by taking the word for son and the word for judgment and cramming them together. So it literally means son judged or son tested. And James Montgomery Boyce gives great background to this word. In the ancient world, potters would take their cracked vessels and they'd fill the cracks with wax to, to fill them in, cover them up. And then they'd paint over it so it looks brand new. And then, of course, they'd sell it at a full price. The problem, though, is that when these pots were held up to the sun, the cracks all shone through. They were obvious, revealing it was a fake. Fine pottery, though, had no such cracks, and therefore it would pass this sun test, and any, any vessel that passed the sun test was marked with the words sincere, which meant without wax. That's where we get the word sincere from. And that's a perfect illustration of, of what the word means, what he's getting at. It boils down to purity. Like fine, fine pottery, one who is sincere is free from any cracks. And that's how God wants us to be, faultless, free from defect, pure. Jesus put it this way, Matthew 5:48, You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's God's standard for us, faultless. Now, look, we know, and God knows, we are far from faultless. But that's God's perfect standard, and that doesn't change. The good news is that we meet God's standard by his grace in Christ. Christ makes us faultless to stand before his throne by faith. But for now, while we still live in the flesh, we make it our ambition to live faultless lives. And so that's why Paul is praying to this end that ultimately they would be faultless, that they would live righteously, holy, sincerely. Basically, he's praying they would walk in a manner worthy of their calling. This is the right purpose to our prayers. He also prays, secondly, that they'd be found blameless. This word was literally used of not falling down, not tripping. So if you went a long country hike today and you didn't, you didn't trip once, they would say you've had a blameless journey. This word can be used in a spiritual sense, though, of being morally uninjured. So it's talking about the one who does not stumble into sin at all. And this is another fitting word for Christians that reflects God's standard. Christians are to live their lives without stumbling into sin. They're to be blameless. 
You're running the race of faith. At the same time, it's a narrow path. And so Paul is praying that they wouldn't trip, they wouldn't stumble anywhere along the way. Now, speaking of this race, speaking of the finish line, he mentions here the day of Christ, that they would be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. You might remember back in verse 6, he already mentioned this day, the day of Christ. It's a reference to our glorification, the day when our salvation is made fully complete. You might also remember back in verse 6, Paul expressed his total confidence that God's power would enable them and preserve them until that day. But as we also learned last week, we still must persevere. We have to strive toward that day. And so, again, he's praying, knowing that God will preserve them, he's still praying that they would persevere and they would be holy and blameless nonetheless. So again, this is, this is the greater purpose behind Paul's prayer. He prays that they would be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. That is, they'd be free from sin and impurity for as long as they live. And this, likewise, this should be the greater purpose behind your prayers for others. This is the destination, a sincere holiness. A sincere holiness. Now let's add in the first half of verse 11. Why don't you look there again? Just to keep things simple, I'll include this as an extension of his purpose from verse 10. He prays that they would be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, verse 11, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ. Verse 11 describes the condition by which believers will be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. The purpose behind his prayer is ultimately that they'd be sanctified, but verse 11 tells us how that's going to happen. They need to be, they are being, and they need to be filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Christ. I'm sure you can imagine what this fruit of righteousness is talking about. This fruit sprouts from the righteousness given to believers by Christ. So you can think of fruit of the Spirit as the result. One commentator writes, quote, Paul prays that in the hearts and lives of the Philippians, there may be a rich spiritual harvest consisting of a multitude of the fairest fruits of heaven, such as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, end quote. I mean, you may know, you may know this is what God wants from you. He wants for you to bear much fruit. I mean, Jesus said, right, John 15, 8, my Father is glorified by this, that's you, bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. How does one bear fruit, which is akin to growing in godliness? Well, it comes through Christ. Christ's sacrifice enables your new birth. As you believe, you're born again, you're dwelt, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, as the Spirit then fills you and guides you, so you bear the fruit of the Spirit. So as you walk by the Spirit, as you live according to God's power, as you abide in Christ, God will produce this fruit of righteousness within you. Jesus also said in John 15:5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Hopefully you can see how this, this aspect actually further clarifies our prayers for one another. 
Again, what's the purpose of his prayer? The content, that they'd grow in love. Why? The purpose, that they'd be basically made like Christ, holy and blameless, sincere until the end. And that needs to be the primary purpose for your prayers as well. But also we find in verse 11, he's also praying that God would do a work in them to bring that about. And that too is key. Uh, We've got a part to play. We must strive to grow and be like Christ. But God must empower us and fill us. And that's after all, that's why we're praying. Because God has to work. Right? If God were not involved in our sanctification, we we wouldn't need to pray. We just go do it. But God is involved. He must work. And so we must pray. And the same goes for others. Think about others in your life. God has to do a work in them too. So pray for them. Pray that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness in Christ. Pray that they would abound in discerning love. Pray that they would be found blameless until the end. This is the right content and the right purpose behind our prayers for others. And finally, we can end with, number three, the right end. The right end, and that would be God's glory. The right end, God's glory. At the very end of verse 11, we find the chief end of his prayer, which is the end of all things. It is to glorify God. If you've noticed in this passage, verses 9 through 11, it can be confusing because you see a lot of Paul in the Greek, these long run-on sentences. But it's all like a big chain. It starts in verse 9. He first prays that they would abound in love. Okay, that's great, but why? Well, verse 10, that they would approve the things that are excellent. Okay, that, that's good too, but, but why is that important? Well, in order that they would be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. That's the, the goal. But even that, we wonder, well, who cares? Who cares that they would be holy and blameless? The answer is God. God cares. And so the ultimate end of this prayer in all things is this. Verse 11 He prays all this to the glory and praise of God. This really is the big picture purpose to Paul's prayer. It's the end of the line, the glory of God. You've got to understand, this is why God made all things. This is why God made you. This is why God saved you to the glory and praise of his name. And to unbelievers, this makes no sense. I have many relatives who are not Christians, but at the same time, they're not antagonistic. They're not, they don't persecute me or anything. In fact, they like to think that they're very spiritual. It's kind of an Oprah-type spirituality, but they think they're very spiritual. And so they often ask me to pray for their sick friends. One time we had very dear family friends uh, I, I even grew up with. They're, um, they're the same age as my parents, but nonetheless, the husband, he got cancer. And so uh, one of my relatives asked me to be praying for him and, and keep him in my thoughts and prayers. And of course, they expect out of me a very one-dimensional prayer. They expect me just to pray for his physical healing. And I I get that. I understand where they're coming from, and it's not wrong. And and of course, I do pray for his physical healing. But the thing is, these family friends of ours, they're actually very true and strong believers. They worked with my parents in my dad's doctor office for many years, and they witnessed to them for many years. So especially because they're believers, I, I add in, other dimensions, deeper dimensions to my prayer for them. 
So sure, I pray that, that God would heal him physically, of course. But why? To what end? Well, concerning our friend for the sake of his holiness, his Christ-likeness, and concerning God for the sake of his glory. I pray that God would be glorified in this. But you realize, to the world, that prayer makes no sense whatsoever. I mean, just, just imagine, how would you pray for that person? It, it might go something like this, like, Lord, I pray that if you will, he would be healed, and your name would be magnified through his healing. But Lord, I understand sometimes you are magnified as your servants trust you when they're not healed. So whatever the case, Lord, that you would be praised through this. And, and for our friend, that he would be made like Christ through this. That, that's what matters most, that you would conform him to Christ's image through this cancer. You know, learning from Paul's prayers and from the Lord's prayers, that, that sounds about right. That's what you would want to pray. But realize, if you prayed that prayer in front of an unbeliever, their, their jaw would, it would hit the floor. It just would make no sense. Why? Because in their ignorance and unbelief, they see prayer as some ritual to obtain divine favor. At, at its core, prayer to them, it's still a selfish endeavor. It's about me, my will, my wishes, my desires. But to us, prayer is actually the opposite. It's not actually about us. It's about God and his will, his wishes, his desires. God's ways are best, not ours. So we're praying that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying that we would be conformed to his ways and not the other way around. That's the prayer of faith. That's the prayer of the one who holds high God's glory that's the prayer of the one who's received and been transformed by God's grace. The only question left is, is that your prayer? Is that how you pray? Is that why you pray? If not, I, I encourage you and challenge you to pray for others this morning and to pray rightly with the right content, the right purpose, and the right mind, or rather the right end. We do all things to the glory of and praise of God. You know, I don't think any of us could really fathom a 100-year prayer meeting like we mentioned at the beginning. I think some of you, you may even struggle with a one-hour prayer meeting. But let the Lord convict you this morning, if need be, on the place of prayer in your life. Prayer for one another. And prayer for the church, it's like the thread which is meant to knit us together. And if more people only took up the call to regularly pray for one another, any little division or disagreement in the body would just melt right away. And furthermore, realize prayer in itself, it's one of the great means God uses to sanctify his people and to bring glory to his name. God is pleased as we express our total trust and dependence in him and as we are conformed into the image of Christ. So my prayer is that you would accept the call this morning, the call to regularly lift up one another in prayer before the throne of grace. Keep following Paul's example, who himself was merely following our Lord's example and praying for one another. And as you do so, the God of peace will be with you and with them, and God will be pleased as you are made in a Christ's image. Why don't we do that now? Let's, let's pray.
Our great and heavenly Father, we are thankful for our time and your word this morning and, and hearing about the purpose, the place, the power of prayer. We all have to confess we don't pray as we should. We don't love as we should. We still are besieged by the sinful flesh. And at times, it keeps us from doing that which we should, like Paul himself confessed, Lord. But it is our prayer now that you work in us to continue to change us, to grow us into Christ's image, and that we would bear the fruit primarily of prayer, that we would express our real and true faith by, by turning to you, to the throne of grace, and letting our requests be made known. Praying, yes, for ourselves, but also for others, Lord. Convict our hearts this morning of the need to be praying for one another. This is, Lord, how you determine to work. You work through our prayers, so we must pray. And you are pleased through our prayers, so we must pray. Again, Lord, convict our hearts, guide us and direct us in, into powerful prayer, intercessory prayer. And as we do so, you are working us. You are conforming us to Christ's image. And you are pleased. So let these truths sink into our hearts this morning and produce real change that like the Apostle Paul, who was merely trying to be like the Lord himself, we all would be men and women of prayer, trusting in you. All to your glory, Lord. This is all for your glory. And so that's our ultimate prayer now, for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.